Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? So it's Friday and I realize that we don't usually release podcasts on Friday. We're usually a once a week kind of team here, but we decided this might be an opportunity to do a little extra shorter bonus episode, just the two of us talking about a new book that just came out. It's Prince Harry's autobiography, Spare. So maybe we should just explain up front why we're talking about this. Or maybe we should just start with why we're not talking about it. We're (laughs) not talking about it because we're really into the royal family. No. At all. I mean, we're Americans. The drama, we fought a war so we wouldn't have to worry about the royals, right? <laughs> I remember watching Princess Diana's wedding and thinking, what's the big deal, right? They're just two normal people getting married, but it's such an extravagant affair. So we're not interested in the royal drama, and it's even hard to keep track of who's the Duke of Sussex and who's the Duchess of York or what, whatever. Cambridge or... I don't care about those kind of things. I don't care about their fashion and what they're wearing. I don't care... Although you are a big hat guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something in the book about Megan didn't wear a hat in the presence of the king, and it's just a big drama. You know, and then Harry's trying to defend her by saying, well, they told her not to wear a hat. And I just can't imagine living in a world where you have to wear a hat in the presence of your grandmother or it's like hits the papers as being a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say this. When you read this book, one thing you realize is meritocracy is better than the aristocracy, right? Like (laughs) every society has to figure out how they're going to grant privilege and opportunity to people. And we do ours on merit. Like you earn your way up to the top. And there's problems with that. We've done a whole podcast on some of the problems of meritocracy. About exactly one year ago, we released a podcast on the problems of meritocracy. Was it a year ago? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a kind of a fun conversation. But another way of doing it is the aristocracy. And that is by birth. And that's why Harry has come into fame. And that's why we even know about him is because of who he was born to. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying on one level, Harry's a very sympathetic character. For the record, I would not want to trade my life for his life. I would not want to grow up in the environment he grew up. And you brought up that example, but there's also tragedy in his life. Losing his mom at a young age was clearly a deeply traumatic experience that, I mean, if you read his autobiography, quite literally shaped up to the present the rest of his life. I mean, he hardly did a thing, went anywhere without thinking about his mom, who he missed and loved and wished was still with him. It's very much on his mind. He sees himself as kind of the heir of Diana, right? That he's the one who has her spirit. And I think in some sense he does, because in 1995, she gave kind of a tell-all interview to Martin Bashir. And last year, people were talking about the controversy of how he got that. Like he manipulated her, tricked the princess into 
into giving him this interview? I'm not so sure because she very willingly spilled her guts in a very emotional, raw, behind the scenes, kind of almost too personal, too intimate for an interview where she said that there were famously three people in her marriage. And she was talking about Camilla Parker Bowles, who Prince Charles, her husband, was having an affair with. So in some sense, Prince Harry is very much like his mom because this book is, I would call it emotional pornography. Do you think that's too much? I mean, he's laying it all out. He doesn't spare any details. Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree. I would never write a book like this, even if I had half a life like him, simply because I would not want to bear myself the way that he has. Now, there's a purpose behind what he's doing, and we're going to get into that. But I just want to say, I feel a level of sympathy for him. Spending your entire life being chased by paparazzi, having your mom die because in part she was chased by paparazzi, not being able to have relationships with women that you loved because of the paparazzi, that sounds like a miserable, awful, awful way to live. And so I do feel sympathy for him. But this is also very much so the way that Harry presents himself, and it's very much so in the spirit of his mom. Harry is the victim of a system, a system that wants to churn him, chew him up, and spit him out and has no actual concern or care for him. And so when you read this, it's very clear that we're supposed to feel bad for him. Now, this is where I have to come into play and people are going to dislike me for saying this. Take away all of the self-victimizing that's in the book. Here's how Harry comes across to me. He is a party boy, a playboy who dabbled with drugs, had a serious problem with alcohol, made a lot of extraordinarily stupid decisions, which if I made those, by the way, even as a non-famous person, they would have wrecked my life. It just seems like he has a knack for finding the dumbest thing to do and then <laughs> doing it and then blaming someone else for it, you know? And I know people are going to get upset and think I'm not being very sympathetic. It's just a fact. I mean, he did it time and time again. And add to that, that he comes from extreme, extreme affluence. So he's got lots of interesting stories because the dude has so much money. He can go to the North Pole. He can go to the South Pole. He can go to every continent. He can go on African safaris. I mean, I'm looking at this. I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, this guy's lived what a lot of people would kill to live, which is having every possible opportunity on the table, every order of extravagance available to him. He had it all. And yet it came at a personal cost of his privacy. And even why the book has its title, The Spare, if you don't know, it's because it's kind of a running joke. It's almost like it comes across like an inside joke throughout history in the monarchy that there's the heir, the person who's going to inherit the throne. And then there's the spare. And the spare is there in case something happens to the heir. Maybe the heir needs a kidney or a blood transfusion or Maybe tragically the heir dies and the spare can step in. So Harry grew up with that nickname, that yeah. label. And he said that people always kind of said it in jest. It's kind of a running joke. But to have your mom, your dad, the people that you love and around call you the spare. It's really mean. It's super weird. That's not a healthy family dynamic, no. to say the least. If I had to trade lives, I wouldn't do it. Not the least because he is most certainly from an extraordinarily dysfunctional family. I mean, just pause and take the royalty out of it. If your mom and your dad had their marriage break apart because of an affair that was in any way public, well, that multiple would be miserable. affairs because Diana had oh, yes, her she had own hers. affair too, right? I mean, she comes out squeaky clean in this, and I'm sitting there thinking, again, I'm not a royal scholar, but even as a non-royal <laughs> scholar, you know, she was not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. But that would mess you up. That would mess you up. And if you had a lot of the experiences he had, it would cause you a lot of pain if you grew up in a family like that. I feel sympathy for him. And like you said, Diana had her faults also, although you don't find them mentioned in this book. And the same could be said of his marriage to Meghan Markle, that she comes across in this much like Diana. She's the 
perfect figure. And in some sense, I think Harry is on this quest to find his mom again. I mean, at well, one point it. in the book, Meg says to him, you're not the spare to me. And that's kind of what he needs to hear yeah. is that he needs somebody to validate him that he isn't defined by the royal family that he grew up in. And one of the things that I found interesting is that he has this relationship with Meghan Markle and he acts like it's all so pure. It just happened organically. She There's, had no idea who he was. Right. He says on more than one occasion that she never Googled him. So she really didn't know anything about him. And I'm like, what? You think Meghan Markle was going out on dates with you and then went to Africa, like early in their relationship, they go to Africa. Basically the first thing they did together. <laughs> and she has no idea who you are. Well, first of all, they just would be smart. No person should be going on an African safari <laughs> with somebody they don't know. Second, well, of course she Googled you, bro. Yeah. But he needs her to have not done that. He needs her to not care about all the royalty. Yeah. So, okay, let's pause. This is not going to be some sort of Jungian, Freudian analysis of Harry because we don't know the guy, right? In fact, no one who read his book knows him. He didn't write it. It was ghostwritten. So that's fact number one. Do you think it was well-written or not? Because I thought it was very well-written. Because I've heard people criticize it and I don't get it. Oh, it's spectacularly well-written. I think the person who ghostwrote this also ghostwrote Open by Andre Agassi, uh -huh. which I think was really good. And something else that I can't think of right now. No. Harry is, I don't know if proud's the right word. He was made fun of for not being very intelligent. It's one of these acts of unkindness that I think was probably unfair. But on the flip side, he himself says, look, I'm not college material. And that's fine. You don't need to be college material. He himself says, I hardly read any books. I've hardly read a book in my life. And yet, as an English major, I couldn't help but notice this book was laced from top to bottom with references to romantic poets, the British classics. I mean, over, even the Bible, over and over and over again, there's all of these allusions to classic poems, if you know what you're looking for, which I just, again, this just shows he didn't write the book. Now, that doesn't mean it's not his story, but this is not his voice. Well, he read the book on Audible, which I kind of appreciated, but what you found him doing is I would say kind of slightly stumbling over some of those. And then he would throw in a quick line, of course, written by the ghostwriter, something like, you know, whoever that is, Wordsworth, or if anyone cares about that. No, it was man. Faulkner. He said, who the bleep was Faulkner? <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought, man, a royal education is not a very good education. I guess that's an American author. So we'll, we'll give him a okay, So here's the deal. I fear we have already fallen to the trap of coming across like we're giving him an analysis or making fun of him. That's really not the goal. The reason why we're talking about this is very simple. This book, on its opening day, first day out, sold 1.43 million copies. That is that better than Truth Over Tribe did? Or not? <laughs> <laughs> just, just curious. Oh, man, let's not talk about that. Okay. <laughs> um, no, it beat the previous record holder, which was Barack Obama in 2020, his memoir, A Promised Land, which sold 887,000 copies. So it almost didn't quite, but it almost doubled the amount of copies sold on the first day. And it is on trajectory at the moment to be the best-selling nonfiction book of all time. And so what does that tell us? That people are interested in the Royals more than you and I are? That people like gossip? That Harry is a hero to some people? I'm not exactly sure what it tells us that this book doubled or almost doubled Barack Obama's. Yes, there's interest in the Royals, but this isn't the first kind of book. I mean, that's come out along these lines and they haven't sold that well. Here's what I think has happened. Despite his statements about how much he hates fame, how much he hates the paparazzi, how much he doesn't want to be in the public eye, over the last few years, he has made a lot, a lot of decisions, which are worth a lot of money, to put his family into the public eye. They did a very, very public, well-received by certain crowds interview with Oprah Winfrey, which was most 
mostly Megan talking, but he was in there as well. And then they did a whole Netflix docu-series. There's a Spotify deal. And so what I think has happened is that people have consumed much of his story through these mediums, and they found something deeply embedded inside of it, which resonates deeply with the spirit of the age, with our own outlook. And I think that's why the book has done so well, because there's something in it that is about us. It's almost an allegory for our own lives. So you're saying that the people who are attracted to him in this story, they couldn't quite put their finger on what it is that attracts them about it. They wouldn't say, this tells me something about myself. And yet it does. It tells us something about the world that we live in, because you're going to have to wrestle with the question, how in the world did Harry become a hero? How is he somebody that we look up to and want to read more about? Why is he being championed? Because as you think about his story, he seems like an unlikely hero. <laughs> he does. You know, I wrote an article about this much shorter than this podcast for the Gospel Coalition. We'll put it in the show notes. It's called Prince Harry's Spare in the Spirit of the Age. It's what we're talking about right now. But I opened up the article talking about Occupy Wall Street. That was in 2011. It was a really formative event for my generation, millennials. And I remember, I mean, just me personally, Personally, I mean, obviously wasn't present physically there, but I felt a deep resonance with Occupy Wall Street. I think in part it's because, you know, I graduated in 2010. This is right after the Great Recession. And most of my friends who graduated, they had a hard time finding the paid salary jobs that we felt entitled to that we'd been promised. Most of my friends ended up taking unpaid internships. And there's actually a lot of studies out there that show that people who graduated in my age range are, for the most part, making less in their cohorts on either side because they started lower on the pay scale. And so, as you can imagine, when that's happening, what do you do as a generation? We say something is wrong. The institutions that we have as they stand in Wall Street and finance, they need to be burned down. We didn't know if it was the wealthy, the 1% was the big thing with right. Occupy Wall Street, but we knew that they needed to be burned down. We didn't know what we wanted to replace them with, but we knew that they were at fault for what we were experiencing as a generation. And I think that that is our general posture, millennials and probably Gen Z and probably some of Gen X, that's our general posture towards institutions, the scorched earth policy, right? Because we think that the best kind of life is an atomized life where we're free from the constrictions of these institutions that take from us, that try to shape us, that try to make us into something that we don't want to be. We want to be free of those. So, you know, institutional bonfires, they aren't a bug, they're a feature. And that gets us to why I think Harry is such an unusual hero. Because if you think about Occupy Wall Street, who were we raging against? It was the affluent. It was the wealthy. It was the famous. It was the 1%. And who is Harry, Keith? He is the 1%, maybe the 1 millionth of 1%, right? <laughs> I mean, he is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction, one of the wealthiest people in the entire world. Not only is he wealthy, but he's male in the world of Me Too. He is white in a world that is suspicious of how white people have used their power. And he is the prince of a colonial empire, right? That Britain and the monarchy famously has gone into Africa and all over the world and spread their culture. And we live in an anti-colonial era. Put on top of that, that he dressed up in a Nazi uniform for a costume party, and that was splattered all over the media. Well, no, we can keep going. He, in his biography, details how he used racist tropes. He pretended to 
fight the Zulu. The reason why he's able to go to all these places and have all these crazy stories is because these are countries that were formerly part of the British Commonwealth. That's true. Right? Yeah. So even when he goes to Africa, it's like you're traipsing around the ground that you wouldn't be traipsing on if it wasn't for your ancestors and the wealth that they extracted from there. Now, you can make of those things whatever you want to. We're just making the point. He's unusual. I mean, there's a story of him calling his friend from Pakistan a racist name. I mean, these are the kinds of things these days that normally get canceled. These are the kinds of statues that normally get toppled. And in every possible way, he seems to embody the very thing that my generation is raging against. So why? Why do we love him? Well, I think the answer is at least in part because he turns his focus against the very institution that made him into who he is and gave him the opportunities and the wealth that he has. So Harry wants to tear down the monarchy and he does it in a number of ways. I think one of the ways is just by embarrassing the monarchy, by making it seem incredibly petty and small minded. But there's more to it than that. He, I think, uses race against the monarchy with Meghan being biracial. And it seems like, in his words, the monarchy, his family, the royalty, they turned against her because of her race. Now, when asked about that, he denied it. And he said, no, I never said that. The press said that. But I don't think that's true. I mean, I think that before Oprah Winfrey, Meghan Markle's kind of alluded that the royal family was racist. So he's using whatever he can to destroy the institution. And that's why people love him. And I want to be really thoughtful and careful here. Keith and I are not defending the monarchy. So someone oh, walked away gosh, and they say, no. I think we're here. Clearly, the monarchy has some tremendous problems, and they very well might have been racist towards Megan. We're not there. No one listening to this nor us knows the facts of what exactly happened here or there. That's not the point. What we're trying to get at is what's at the heart of what he's doing. And I think a really helpful place to start is actually by comparing him to his grandma, mm -hmm. Queen Elizabeth II. She was coronated in 1953. I think she was 25 at the time. So very young. I think it's one of the youngest coronations of a monarch. I'm pointing out she's very young. Why that's relevant is it's kind of hard for me to imagine a 25-year-old today, much less me when I was 25, <laughs> saying some of the things that she said during her coronation speech. During that coronation speech, she described her, well, I'll just read a quote. She said, I have in sincerity pledged myself to your service as many of you are pledged to mine. Throughout my life and with all my heart, I shall strive to be worthy of your trust. And she goes on to describe her duty to steward her role as queen. Now, again, these days, we don't like the idea of roles. We don't like the idea of responsibilities. We think that those squash your personality. And that's something that Queen Elizabeth really seems to have embraced. <laughs> that, yes, being queen means I have to squash my self-expression, squash my personality in some fashion. She described how, as a queen, she would draw upon, this is a quote, the splendid traditions and annals of more than a thousand years, including her faith, British, quote, social and political thought, and free speech and respect of minorities, and the inspiration of broad tolerance and thought and expression. So what she's saying there is, we have this rich tradition as a culture and it's not a statue to be toppled. It's a trellis upon which our culture can grow and flourish. It's the trellis upon which if you as my subject will step into your role as my subject, and if I as queen will step into my role as queen, we'll have a ordered society where all will work for all's best, where welfare will happen. And so this is describing how she thought. Yeah, she saw the institution as something to be served and that she should dedicate herself to that, even if that 
meant denying herself. And on the other side, a more modern contemporary thing is that no, institutions are bad and we should burn them down. And people want to do that in all kinds of modern institutions from government to the police, to education, to the church. And the attitude today is let's bring the matches because the institutions are what is squelching us and our freedom. So that's what Harry is doing here. There is such a contrast between Harry and his grandmother. And all that happened in an incredibly short period of time. As Yuval Levin says, institutions should form us. And you can hear in the Queen's words that the institution of the monarchy is forming her and that she's going to serve her country. And in contrast to that, what Harry is doing is he's using the institution as a platform for himself, for self-actualization, for self-expression. And you see that a lot today. Just think of Congress. Do people go to Congress to be shaped by it, to do the work of Congress? Or do people use Congress as a platform for their own stuff. So you'll find somebody as different as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, two people who are incredibly different politically, and yet they both are better at Instagram and social media than (laughs) they they are at actually writing policy, right? Because they're using the institution as a platform for their own kind of publicity instead of going to Congress and doing the work. So that's the spirit of the age. Tear down the institution and only use the institution to the extent that it can promote your personal agenda. Oh, man, that's a really good way of framing it, Keith. Do we see tradition as a launching ground or as a statue to be toppled? Do we see institutions as webs of interlocking roles and responsibilities that shape us, like you just said? Or do we see our world as a collection of atomized individuals who need to have the right, the right to self-express? These are very different ways of looking at the world. And whereas Queen Elizabeth saw the institution of the monarchy and British culture in general as something to shape her and form her, such that she suppressed herself very much. I mean, she's famous <laughs> for her self-suppression. Harry, on the other hand, sees the entire royal institution as a cage. Harry is a victim of the royal family. The royal family corrupted him. It prevented him from processing the trauma of his mother's death. And that's the reason why he did all those stupid things I just laid out. The reason why he wore a Nazi costume was because the institution made him do it. Not that someone literally told him, although he does kind of blame his brother for it, not that the institution literally told him you need to wear a Nazi costume, but that it caused him to suppress himself in a way that led him to act out in destructive ways. That's why he did all these racist things. That's why he was running around Las Vegas with his pants off, getting photos taken of him. That's why he did cocaine. All of the things that he did that he's like, yeah, that wasn't the best thing that I did. It's all because of the institution. It suppressed him. And that self-suppression is what caused him to act out the way that he did. It seems like we need to go to the last few pages of the book where he lives in this estate in California with Meghan Markle, his wife now. And I guess they got that estate from the money of the monarchy. There's no sense of appreciation for that. In fact, he's very upset that it seems like the royal family is going to cut them off. According to him, they won't even pay for his security. So he's complaining about his setup in California, which again, I don't know, it just didn't come across great because nowhere in this book is there any kind of self-deprecating, no sense, is there a sense of thankfulness for what he has? But anyway, there they are in the house and somehow a hummingbird has gotten in. So the hummingbird is trapped in the house. and. What he does is he sets the hummingbird free to fly away. And what you get at the very end of the book is that that's who he is now. He's finally pulled himself away from the monarchy 
except he has his hand out wanting more money. But other than that, he's pulled away from the monarchy and now maybe he can finally have the freedom from the institution that he's so longed for. And that's kind of a picture about how we see ourselves, right? That we don't want to be constrained by circumstances. We don't want to be constrained by social conventions. We don't even want to be constrained by our own bodies. We want the freedom to let the true us out into the world. And I think that's what's pictured in The Hummingbird. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. I totally agree. And it's really fascinating. There's a passage where he's talking about his brother's wedding, William. Why I find it fascinating is because he's so positive about his own marriage. But in it, he's talking about how he's losing his brother to Cade and things would never be the same. And he gets to this thing about how essentially it's not just the monarchy. It's all social roles, all social responsibilities are destructive to the self. And so he's describing how he knows his brother's going to change after marriage and he won't be the same. And he ends up describing human life. He describes it as a death loop. You just keep dying and dying, but it's not like the good Christian dying to yourself thing. It's a very negative thing. It says, quote, each new identity assumes the throne of self, but takes us further from our original self, perhaps the core self, the child. And he goes on to describe it as taking like an ingot of gold. And every time you take on a new role or responsibility in society or in relationships, he describes it as shaving away another piece of gold until nothing is left. So taking on social roles, entering into institutions, taking on responsibilities for Harry is the fundamental way to destroy yourself. And I think this explains why throughout the book, he calls virtually every institution he encounters toxic. That's a word from him. I'm not just making it up. It doesn't matter whether it's the military, which he's actually pretty positive about until towards the end of the book, but definitely the royal family, definitely the press, definitely the court, all this, they're all toxic. And he explains in his mind why he's been rejected by everyone. He said, there was a script and I had the audacity not to be following it. Mm, Isn't that the modern kind of what we all aim for is there's a script for us out there that somebody's trying to make us fit into and that's so confining. We're going to write our own script. 
Well, you're making me think. The last part of the book, I think, is taken from the poem Invictus, which he clearly likes. He named his military games after Invictus. I think he's actually read this poem. I'm which is one of the it's... cool things he did, right? The it's one of the best things he does. I love it. who were injured in battle and yeah. war and service to their country. He creates this whole kind of Olympic games called the Invictus Games, yeah. right? It's a great thing. Oh, actually, yeah. Harry does some good things in there. Absolutely. We're going to paint a one-sided picture, but he names the last part of his book after a line from that poem. I think it's one of the last lines, but it's the captain of my soul. Mm. And it's a poem that's very famously about this idea of don't let society be the wind in yourselves. Don't let it determine your future. No, you need to be captain of your own soul. And it's what you're saying right now. We want to be captains of our soul. And according to Harry, the only way we can do this is by freeing our inner wild. It's by burning down the cage that's holding us. Who does that sound like? <laughs> your inner wild and getting out of that cage. It sounds like none other than another famous memoirist, and that's Glennon Doyle, who has this story about seeing a cheetah in a zoo and realizing that the cheetah is this great wild animal that's been confined and everything in our culture is confining her. And so she's going to let out her inner wild. She's going to let out her cheetah and do her thing. And so what that meant for her was divorcing her husband and getting married to Abby Wambach and leaving kind of her Christian mommy blogger life behind and instead embracing this new role. So it's not just Prince Harry. It's not just Glennon Doyle. It's the water that we're all swimming in. And it's hard for us to see. But every once in a while, a book like Spare comes along and just paints such a clear picture that we can just step back and say, okay, what does this tell us? Not about Harry, not about the royal family, about our culture. And ultimately, what does it tell us about us? Do we live in this world where we're trying to write our own script, where we think this inner cheetah, inner wild needs to come out? Or are we willing to take on like Queen Elizabeth? Not that she's our hero, but that mindset of I am serving something else. I'm okay being the spare in my life, right? Because I'm okay <laughs> yeah. not being the center of my family. I'm okay not being the center of my church. I'm okay living within the confines that God has given me. He's given me a gender. He's given me certain talents and abilities and put me in a certain location and I can thrive here. Or do I need to kind of write my own script out there somewhere? Oh, man, I love the way you're framing this, Keith, that you're showing there's two different options. And there's one that's very much so the spirit of the age. I mean, Glennon Doyle's book, it not only topped out the New York Times bestseller chart, I think for like six or seven months after it came out, it continually, repeatedly, and it came out in 2020, hits the top seller list to this day. And what she do? She tapped into the spirit of the age, the exact same spirit that I think Harry's tapping into. And just take the point, I mean, I could read you quote after quote from her book that would sound exactly Exactly like Harry. For example, she turns Eve into a hero. She says, we should all take the fruit, you know, don't let God hem you in, take the fruit, let out your inner wild. But I'll quote other people just to make the point that, hey, this isn't just her. How about this? How about a Supreme Court justice, Justice Kennedy? Wow. I'll read the quote in a second, but he thinks that we have a right to self-express and to self-actualize. This is the quote. He says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. This doesn't sound like a Supreme Court opinion, does it? It sounds like pop psychology almost. Something like you would find in a self-help book or a self-help part of the bookstore. Well, let me give you another example. Stephen Colbert. He did a very, very famous, well-received speech at Wake Forest. It's a Wake Forest commencement speech. I think it was back in 2015, 2016, somewhere around there. And he's using his personal story to warn these students who are about to enter the quote-unquote real world about the risks that arise when you become comfortable with your cage. 
And this is what he says. He says, because I spent many years learning to do one thing really well. I got so comfortable in that place, that role, those responsibilities, that it came to define how I saw myself. He's talking about his time on Comedy Central, uh-huh. like with The Daily Show. So this is right and John when he's Stewart switching over. Yeah. And all that, right? Yes. And so he's switching over now to, at this point, to be the CBS late night host. Yeah, exactly. And so what did he learn from his complacency? It's what we would expect, that everybody needs to leave their cage behind. So this is a quote. They need to leave their cage behind and, quote, find the courage to decide for yourself what is right and wrong. He tells them that after they graduate, the only grandeur that matters is yourself. He says this. He says, quote, so do yourself a favor. Be an easy grader on yourself. Score yourself on a curve. Give yourself extra credit. So this is Stephen Colbert's advice. Leave your cage behind. Don't become complacent. Find the courage to define right and wrong for yourself and give yourself an easy time. So if we see this in Prince Harry and in Glennon Doyle and in the Supreme Court opinion and in Stephen Colbert, I think what we're saying here is that this is the spirit of our age. And if you don't see it in yourself, it's because you're not very self-aware. Because this is something that all of us, no exceptions, struggle with, that we have this idea that we should be able to promote ourselves, live for ourselves, do our thing. And what does that mean? Well, we are on this quest for happiness. And sometimes that quest for happiness causes us to go down a party atmosphere. Sometimes it's pursuing a job, it's moving away. But a lot of times it's also fighting against institutions. Christians are susceptible to this too. It's why you see Christians, I think, turning on the institution. I saw a pastor in a seminary professor, no need to mention the name, talking about the church. And he said, bring the matches. So what he wanted to do was- This was a guy on the right, just to be clear. Yeah, oh, absolutely. He wanted to burn down the church. But then you have people on the kind of the deconstructing left who are upset at the church, but they don't have the sense of reform it or renew it. Instead, they have the sense of let's get rid of it. We don't need it. It's bad for us and bad for our culture. Yeah. You know, and I think you're right. This involves all of us. I see it in my own heart. I see it in my own life. Part of the reason why I spent so much time researching this and studying it and reading about it is because it's so deeply ingrained into me. I mean, like I said, I'm the guy who felt a deep sense of empathy for the Occupy Wall Street movement. This idea of let's tear things down, let's destroy things. But let me put it this way. Here's my fear for my generation. We're going to be the generation of ash and chaos. We will burn everything down. We will destroy everything. But I think, I fear that we fundamentally lack the courage or the self-sacrifice to build anything in our wake. And the truth is that a bunch of ash, a bunch of ruin, that makes for a poor eulogy. That's not a legacy worth having. And I fear that that's all we care about. All we care about is destroying and we don't have renewal. And, you know, I think that's a scary place to be. Well, it's easy to burn things down and I'm attracted to it too. It's easy to find faults. It's easy to see where institutions have messed up, people have messed up and to want to make them pay, to hold them accountable, but not in a healthy way that leads to real transformation and change, but in a way that, like you said, burns it down. So it's not hard to do. You know what's hard is building something, building something better. It could be a business. It could be a church. It could be a nonprofit. It could be a lot of things. But if I build something, you know what happens? I make the same mistakes a lot of other people make because it turns out I'm not much different. And therefore, I'm more sympathetic with the people who've gone before me and they've made their mistakes because I understand the pressures from the inside. The people who are best at tearing things down are the people who are unsympathetic because they have never built something on their own. 
man, that's really good. You're making me think back to Prince Harry for a second when he wore his Nazi costume, which I mean, at any age, it was just shocking. Anyways, so well, you a- shouldn't do that, especially because the whole book you're talking about how the paparazzi is always taking photos. If it's not the paparazzi, then it's your own people you're at a party with who will make money off selling it to the magazine. So you go to that knowing that people are going to take pictures of you. Yeah, I wish you didn't have to live that way, but you do. But then he blames it on his brother and well, sister-in-law. I'm just even thinking about, you remember that Bachelor contestant who chose the gal who went to a plantation party? Unlike you, I don't watch The Bachelor, so well, it doesn't really sound familiar. We, <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about. I remember this one. I think we actually talked about it on a podcast at we one did. point. I'm just okay. I was like, I don't think about this. The response to her was, you know, burn this gal down. And you know what? She'd gone to a plantation party in college as part of her sorority. Yes. She showed up. She didn't plan it or anything. She showed up in a dress that was appropriate for that Antibody time dress, and age. Yeah. yeah, that's the name. It, here's the thing. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that. And yes, even as a 19-year-old or 20-year-old, whatever she was, you should have been intelligent enough to know that that is a really stupid thing to do and that it's totally inappropriate. It's just fascinating. Watch the same people who burned her down are now, you know, hooray, Harry, which again, I just find it hilarious. I don't know why. But back to the Nazi costume, after he wears it, the royal family decides that he needs to go visit the Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And so he goes and he visits him. And it clearly made an impression on him, the conversation that he had. And Jonathan Sachs was gracious to him, but also very direct and said, what you did was wrong. There's no excuse for it. And he said, you're right. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. And I think he really meant it. I think he really realized, yeah, this was really stupid and I'm dumb. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I won't ever listen to William and Kate again. Is yeah. that what he said? Well, that is kind of effective. It's shocking. His ability to blame everything on someone else. He wears the costume. He found the costume, but it's Williams. Anyways, here's what I wish would have happened. No, he's not a reader, so he would never do this. I wish he wouldn't have just had one meeting with Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I wish he would have sat down and read his work and sought to understand him. Because actually, <laughs> Jonathan Sachs, who's now unfortunately passed away, he thinks very clearly on this topic. He talks about how in all societies there are two warring impulses, what he calls chaos and order. And he makes the point that if you have too much chaos, you end up with anarchy. And if you have too much order, you end up with totalitarianism. And when you look at my generation, perhaps we've rightly understood that too much order, it can lead to terrible things. It can lead to injustice. And that's my hope from a generation. I think we are burning down some things that actually need to be burned down. And Jonathan Sachs would say, yes, amen. But he would push back and say, but without order, without a social order, without people dying to themselves and taking on these different roles and responsibilities, whether that's being a wife or a husband, a mom or a dad, an employer, an employee, without embracing those roles and without embracing those responsibilities, we will lack order. And without order, human life can't flourish. Without order, human life is going to suffer. And we know this for a fact. There are countless studies that show that communities that have the highest rates of charitable giving in local institutions, those are also the communities where, guess what? People are most likely to rise out of poverty. They have the lowest rates of criminality, the lowest rates of depression and anxiety and drug abuse. It turns out when we take on roles and responsibilities and we see ourselves as a part of a network of people, that's really good for the human soul. And Jonathan Sachs understood that. Unfortunately, Prince Harry, I don't think I've ever read anything by him and never got the deeper insight from someone who left an impression on him. Okay, so I think bonus episode, we should wrap it up. Hopefully you've enjoyed our ranting about this book. Again, we're not royal scholars. We're just two guys who write a book and thought <laughs> it had something to we say. We should change the our, podcast to two guys who write a book. <laughs> had something to say about our cultural moment. Check out Patrick's article on the Gospel Coalition, link in the show notes. Go check it out. I just want to end by 
making a call to my fellow millennials. I love my generation. I'm not a millennial hater. I've never been that. Just know this. There is beauty. There's true beauty in playing a role without having to be the star. Be the spare. You can be the spare. Your life might be far better if you're the spare. There's goodness. There's real goodness in submitting to duty and submitting to a vision that's greater than yourself, especially if that's the kingdom of heaven coming on earth <laughs> as it is in heaven. That's a vision worth giving your duty, your life, and your submission to. So yeah, let's tear down things that need to be teared down. But let's never forget that rebel makes for a very poor legacy. We need to follow Jesus's example rather than Harry's. He knew that the temple had been torn down by Babylon, but he rebuilt it, not with actual stones, but with living stones. And we've been invited into that same journey. So let's be the rebuilders in our generation, not just the demolishers. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.